Hello and welcome back to the Optimizing Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Marty Kendall. On this show, we take an engineering approach and speak to the experts about the insights into weight loss, fasting and nutrition, as well as real life people about their journey of nutritional optimization. And we're live with Dana Rogers. So good to chat again. Um, I've just got so much admiration for what you've done and what you've achieved and you've put your life into this whole sacred cow project and um, regenerative agriculture. And yeah, so thanks for coming on to have a chat. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose the first question for a bit of backstory, what got you so passionate that you've, I mean, Rob was a co-author on the book, but was really your baby for the last four years. And you've put four years into your life of trying to explain this really concept uh complex but important topic what got you so passionate about that what sparked that i'm trying to think of the most efficient way to tell you um uh, <laughs> <laughs> all these topics that i've got to, to chat about we could talk about for an hour each but, yes uh, i know yeah. i was warning you um well i'll give you the, sh the quick version is that um i was super like malnourished as a kid i had an undiagnosed celiac disease and a very similar story to Rob, actually, um, like some weird learning disabilities just due to, you know, not absorbing any nutrition at all. Um, underweight, like low muscle tone, I was just a mess. And I didn't find out I had celiac until I was 26. Um, and so I started digging more into nutrition and then I found Rob's book. And uh, so gluten-free helped a little, mm -hmm. but paleo sealed it all up. And yep. I completely changed my career and became a dietitian in my 30s um, because I, you know, found this um, and wanted to help more people and take insurance and work with doctors and all of that. So that's the that's the nutrition end of it. And, um, you know, I've, I've found, um, you know, nutrient density and high protein and protein leverage to be like that next level that works so well for people. Yeah. Um, so and so I'm totally on board with exactly everything you say. So a hundred percent aligned. Um, and, and I had so much fun in that nutrient density challenge, by the way, I tell people about <laughs> that all the time. Cool to I'm see. super competitive. And so like I'm running around trying to find endives and like <laughs> to get my, I don't even remember what, <laughs> what they were for, but I was like, Oh my God, I must eat it. But it ended up, I was going to have to eat like seven bowls of endives in order to get whatever I needed from them. Um, but I learned a ton and it was just super like, trying to beat Rhonda Patrick at, at nutrient density. <laughs> like that's like super fun. Um, and then at the same time, I grew up on Eastern Long Island um, where it's, um, it's kind of known as a vacation destination for a lot of New Yorkers, um, but there are a lot of farms out there too. And so I worked on farms as my summer job um, yeah. in high school and college. And then, um, uh, you know, started a little garden, got more and more down the rabbit hole, uh, ended up spending 18 years living on a working farm with um, my recently ex-husband. 
um, and just learned a ton about regenerative agriculture and, and the role of animals in that process and why you have mm. to have animal inputs in order to have mm. healthy vegetables. And so, um, so I was wanting to write this book that really combined um, nutrient density and optimal human nutrition with optimal food production to me it's the same thing and it's mm. such an easy sell on people who are already into the ancestral health um mm. mindset because of course if you want to eat like our ancestors we should also mimic natural cycles for food production too like mm. super easy um not as easy sell on environmentalists who all believe we need to be cutting back on meat and eating yeah. you know whole grains and vegetables only um, so that's been a little bit of a challenge, but anyhow, so I finally convinced Rob that, um, it was time to write this book. Um, it was really nice to have his assistance in getting a good publishing deal and, um, you know, more audience. And also he's really creative when it comes mm. to storytelling. Um, yeah. and so the example of grass world in the book was like his idea. Head, doesn't it? It's hard to unsee that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's really fun for me to brainstorm with him because we, um, work really well together in that way. I think uh, when I was chatting to you ages ago, you'd been working on the book for a while and said, oh, Rob came in to review it. And then, oh, Rob's a co-author and we're writing the book together, but you'd still been working on this thing for a while and then it blew up into something more. But yeah, it's been four years of your life that you've passionately devoted to what is a very important topic. Like you say, people who haven't been involved in real life farming get, you know, easily captured by a simple message, but it's nothing but a simple message. It's not simple at all. It's very complex and you put four years of your life into doing a book and a film to explain, try and explain that. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah. And they're really different. So if anyone is watching this and maybe mm. um, only saw the film, the book is way, it's better. It's, it's way deeper because you can't, it, these are hard things to explain in a film. And, yeah. um, and also it was so hard to do it in a film in 120 minutes to, I mean, nutrition, environment, ethics, you know, so many things. Um, and so in the book, we were really able to dig in deeply, yeah. especially in the ethics section and like the um, meat in human culture, which was my um, favorite part of it. Like, mm. what does meat represent? Why is it so polarizing? And mm. how did we even get to this place where meat is both, you know, the savior to some and the villain to others? And anyway, so that was the most interesting to me. It's such a hot button topic that the, you got the carnivores on one end going, only eat meat, you know, plants of the devil, and then you got all the vegans on the other extreme with the polar opposite view, and some of them seem to be healthy on either end, and there's limitations, and it's just crazy how divisive this is. So, um, the number one question, maybe just to get out of the way, is what is regenerative agriculture in a a soundbite. It's a, a new catchy term that's starting to catch on, but um, what does it mean? Yeah, so it is a catchy term and it's basically, it's where it's, you know, when, when organic, when the organic movement first kind of came about in the 70s, it's really what they meant. Um, it's just that organic got co-opted and then sustainable <laughs> got co-opted. Um, but it's, Every it's, little term gets co-opted and greenwashed. Oh my gosh. 
uh, regenerative too is too. Like I'm meeting all these vegan regenerative cashew bar companies and stuff like that. Um, what are their labor practices? Like cashew, that's hugely problematic. Uh, right. Anyway, importing things and wrapping it in plastic what and shipping it around and oh my gosh. Uh, but so the idea behind this new term regenerative, which is really like sometimes bugs me because all these millennials think that they like invented it. And there are so many old hippies out there that have been doing this for so long. And, and even before them, you know, Native Americans have been practicing regenerative agriculture forever. Um, but it's the idea that we want to leave things um, better than when we found them. So we want to build soil health. We want to do everything to try to increase biodiversity, meaning as many um, life forms, plants and animals above and below ground as possible. Uh, and, and animals are critical to that. You have to have livestock in order to have a regenerative system. And people debate me on that one, but I'm pretty firm on that. As, far, as well as like in order to have an optimal diet, you have to have animal inputs as well. So just unpack that. Why is it so important to have plants and animals together? You can't just have animals growing in a corner and plants with this big monocrop industrial ag system in the other corner completely separate. Why Why do you need to integrate the two for mm -hmm. human and planetary health? So um, grasslands co-evolved with grazing animals. That's, mm. um, that's you know, the, the, the grass must have pruning from the animals in order to keep, I mean, everyone who has a lawn knows that they have to mow it because if you don't mow the grass, it just kind of gets longer and longer and longer. And then it just oxidizes and turns brown and falls mm. over and dies. Um, but if you, if you mow it and water it and uh, fertilize it, then it's a healthy lawn. Mm. Uh, but cattle can do that um, naturally out in the wild. They can mow it. Um, and they can fertilize it with their manure and their carcasses and their urine. Um, and, uh, and through that process, grasslands can then support other life as well. And so here in the US, I don't, you probably don't have the Audubon Society in the, uh, no. Australia. Do you have that group? It's no. a really big bird group here in oh. the US. And um, they're now working with ranchers and have Audubon certified beef because they they were for many years a lot of these environmental and conservation organizations wanted to have just like empty vistas of just empty fields we're not gonna we're just gonna let nature do it um and what they realized is we don't have the the herbivores that we used to have we don't have all the deer and the elk and and bison and all the other animals to keep these meadows healthy and so mm -hmm. they just get overgrown and they end up being really unhealthy. And so you have to have as many different types of grazers and predators and birds and pollinators um, above ground and then as many different microbes below ground as possible in order to have the most resilient ecosystem possible. Yeah, and that creates such a, an amazing resilient ecosystem that's good for us and uh, you know and good for the environment at the same time so mm -hmm. that the healthy micro microbiome of the soil just creates healthy animals and healthy plants that are actually good for us and lead to health and nutrient density and it's all wonderfully interrelated in a way that we 
are so separated from these days. And I'm blown away by you, know, you talked about fertilizer, but you know, in 1908 they patented the Harbor Bosch process that enabled you to extract energy from methane from natural gas and just basically dump it into the soil and grow all these plants really quick. Nitrogen, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. It just replaced the need for animals in there, but that just brings energy. Nitrogen, it doesn't bring all the other nutrients that come with that healthy, diverse microbiome and that the animals bring and, you know, the, the animal manure. And it's just crazy how that has been able to separate us from the need to have those animals and plants integrated and it's basically created the population explosion that we're trying to solve with how do we feed 10 billion people in 2050 but it's like oh wait up we wouldn't have that problem it's just the crazy revelation that does my brain in that you half the people on the planet wouldn't be here if we couldn't feed them with this artificial synthetic fertilizer we've created and, and we're just doubling down on that you know monocrop system with the technology that created it it's just like well nobody sees that why does nobody see that yeah you just touched on a lot of really taboo <laughs> things all at once right there it, it, it completely it's like how are we gonna feed all these people it's like why do we have all these people to feed you know yeah. um and uh so in the book... They're really hard questions, and I don't know how to answer them, and they're not easy to grapple with, and everybody looks away, but that mm-hmm. that's the reality is we've created these synthetic ways to overpopulate the world, and we're saying we're going to continue to do that by more large-scale agriculture separated from separating plants and animals with large tractors and, and, and get rid of all the animals, and it's like, wow... It's really distorted, isn't it? It's like mm. totally, and and I feel like there's only a handful of us that actually like have the right, like everyone else is wearing these weird distorted lenses and we're the only ones that can actually see it happening. Um, and yeah, the, in the book, Ishmael, have you read Daniel Quinn? I haven't read that one, no. Okay, I don't, it's a trilogy, so I'm not sure if it's Ishmael or or one of the other two books, but he talks about, you know, if you take a shoebox and you, or a, a box and you have a hundred mice in there and you give them exactly enough food for a hundred mice, you're going to keep having a hundred mice. Mm. But if you give them enough food for 500 mice, you're going to mm. have 500 mice. Mm. Um, anyway, it, it, it populate, you know, you can't talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to ride away from the topic. So so greenwashing, how have we co-opted? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just talk about greenwashing. <laughs> how, how has big ag, big food, big industry, I mean, you look at the people behind Eat Lancet and all the little logos of, you know, from Google to fertilizers to pharmaceutical companies to all the big food companies that want you to eat in this, uh, you know, monocrop. Um, Within planetary boundaries. Animal. What was that? Um, they'll say within planetary boundaries. We need to eat within planetary boundaries. That's what they'll say. Yeah. Um, eat Lancet. And um, and it's so funny because all these companies are looking at, well, what, you know, what of our broken system is the most, uh, it has the least emissions. And then how can we create human feed from that instead of us 
looking at what is the ideal diet for thriving humans and how do we produce that in a way that um, is friendly to the planet, right? Those are very, two very different ways of approaching this very complex topic. Yeah, the, the, the most efficient way to feed humans is just to take the chemical fertilizers, dump them into the soil, create high fructose corn syrup, refined flour and refined oil and just keep feeding the population that will just, just give them a little variety and turn it into 500 mice to an infinite yeah. number of mice using the, the, the energy from non-renewable natural gases that will create a different sort of human to what we've seen 10,000 years yeah, ago. Yeah, we're all going to be like we're, we're Wally. It is. That, that, that's the most <laughs> prophetic dystopian picture that gets into my mind. Wally, those people who are all just, you know, they can't move. They're just walking bags of industrial seed oil and far from healthy. It's just a crazy dystopian nightmare that... That you can see at any grocery store in the United forward. States <laughs> when you see yeah. the shopping. Yeah. Um, so greenwashing. Let's, <laughs> let's get ourselves back to, up the rabbit hole. And I should mention to everyone who's watching this that I was joking. Marty has never seen Drunk History, but... <laughs> This could turn into that only because I this is the end of the day for me. It's morning for Marty, but it's been the end of a long week. And so I am, this is uh, tequila, seltzer, and some bitters. So I'm Gonna just making interesting. Full disclosure. Yeah. Um, greenwashing. Uh, you know, one of the companies I hate the most as far as greenwashing is Oatly. They're terrible. Mm -hmm. Um but all of them are pretty bad too. saying, you know, um, no evil, no death, no harm, you know, food that you can feel pure and, and angelic about eating because there couldn't have possibly been any death in this. And I, and I think most people who are buying these products really just feel guilty that um, an animal died for them. And, and, you know, they see these images of, these horrible images that are spread all over the place of, of animal abuse that's happening in our CAFO animal system. Mm -hmm. And certainly some of that happens. And I've, you know, served on boards for animal welfare. We need to change the system and mm -hmm. there are better and worse ways of raising animals for sure. And, mm -hmm. you know, industrial chicken, I would say is way even worse than an industrial, um, beef production mm. uh so if someone's in a grocery store and their choice is like typical beef typical chicken or typical pork get the beef because it's mm. about 30 percent more nutrient dense than chicken wow. you know um way less omega-6s people yeah. don't realize how many omega-6s are in chicken mm. um but also pigs and chickens are indoors in horrible conditions their entire lives eating only grain where cattle, all cattle, even if they're finished on a feedlot, start off on pasture um, and then may spend three to four months in a feedlot being finished. Um, but uh, it's it's way less um, mean to the animal than, um, than pork and chicken. Uh, but the greenwashing, you know, saying that no animals died, that this is a pure and clean product. I mean, now when I go to these food shows, um, I go to these natural pro nat what is it the uh, natural product expos, 
Um, you know, there's people, these plant-based companies are taking over the vegan ultra processed food companies. And it's all these halos of purity and it's just absolute BS. And so one of the things I'm working on now is actually to show why avoiding meat is actually quite elitist. And it's fine if you individually want to do that, but to set global dietary policy because you don't like the idea that animals died is um, completely unethical. And uh, there's a lot of people in the world that don't have the privilege to push away meat and they don't have the access to the variety of plant foods that you would need in order to have, you know, a somewhat mockingly healthy ish vegan diet. Um, they don't have access to pharmacies to get the supplements. I mean, none of that is happening in, in many developing countries. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose from a greenwashing point of view, it's like they've, jumped on board the next trend the next fad that they see that people are interested in is how do we save the planet um how do we you know feed 10 billion people in a sustainable manner and they've just jumped on the same food system and just rebranded it to continue to extrapolate what we've been eating over the last 50 years since the green revolution that's continued to produce more calories more cheaply more quickly with less nutrients than we need to feed more people but you know we're not feeding them well at all we're not feeding them healthy foods at all and yeah it's just crazy um yeah um so how how you know why is regenerative agriculture so important in that picture to to turn that around how, how does that worldview change the narrative and and improve things um well i mean one is that it puts more um you know rob and i argue for regional food systems and not these like corporate global food systems and we saw mm. that in covid in the u.s where you know one meat packing plant ha has issues um and needs to shut down and that creates meat shortages everywhere um mm. and so we need less centralized control of our food and more regional resilient food systems. Mm. Um, we need more money in the hands of farmers, which will build up more um, robust rural communities. And because right now mm. when you drive through the US and I'm sure this is happening over there too, mm. um, rural America is completely boarded up. There's like a Walmart, or a Kmart or one of these like big box stores or everyone's ordering from Amazon and the little, the little small businesses that used to keep the town going are gone. And that's largely because also agriculture is now, um, you know, instead of several small farms that are feeding the local population, it's one gigantic farm that is producing corn for some, organization you know some corporation like in another state yeah um so less jobs or some, some overseas less skilled place. jobs all of that so less pride um and so that's one way that we we just need more small scale and medium scale businesses period and and especially with food production um, so I told you, you're not going to get to all your questions. <laughs> no, Here we are almost halfway through. And what do you want question two? Um, but 
uh, anyway, so we, we are losing, we're, we're, our current system of agriculture is just absolutely not going to feed the planet moving forward. And so it's going to have to switch to regenerative whether or not we want it to. So we might as well get ahead of the curve and, and, and switch. So, so what, what are we headed for? What's the current farming practice system? When does that run out? of viability is it soil health microbiome health for soil um we're, we're losing soil rapidly don't know when exactly we're going to run out of available topsoil etc etc when does that run out if we can't continue to go at an exponential curve the way we have been for the last 50 years no we need like 27 planets in not very much time if we keep going at this exponential growth rate that we have right now. Um, that you know, a lot of people are repeating this. We have 60 harvests left, and that was that's actually not really based in science. It was it was a comment someone from the FAO made at a conference, like off the cuff with no research, but people are repeating it as if it's now the official position of the United Nations that we have 60 harvests left. So um, that that's not true necessarily. Um, we don't really know. Um, we certainly have limited harvest left. There are limited resources going into, you know, um, the chemical agriculture uh, system. Um, and, but I think one of the biggest issues is gonna be water because mm. we're just, climate change is happening. Um, the, it's gonna get hotter in the, in the middle and, and the amount of food that we can produce is gonna get further and further away from the equator as it just gets hotter and hotter. We're not going to be able to produce the cereal grains that we have been because they they need a certain climate, um, and we're just not going to have the water to uh, be able to irrigate all of it. And so, yeah, lack of water is a massive issue in Australia. It's, mm -hmm. Everybody's clamoring to get enough water to water their farms, and the the Chinese are buying up the the biggest water allocations. And yeah, it's just a, a crazy grab for a limited resource. Yeah. Um, so, so tell us about the nutrient depletion of the soil, uh, not just the topsoil eroding, but what happens to the nutritional content of the soil as we keep on doing this industrial agriculture year after year. So um, that one I can answer pretty quickly. If you think of soil as a bank and you're growing a, a crop, the crop is actually taking nutrients out of the soil as it grows. And then you, you know, lop off that that crop, the corn or the whatever it is, and you're taking the nutrients that were in the soil with it. And so you need mm -hmm. to re replete them in some way. And it's more than just um, nitrogen and, you know, the, the handful of chemicals that we're, mm -hmm. that we're actually using to grow. There's a lot of other micronutrients. Um, our, our food is particularly low in selenium, which is mm -hmm. you know, really important for thyroid health uh, um, in many parts of of the country here. And, um, and so we, you know, when you have grazing animals, you're actually building soil and you're, you're doing it naturally and the grass is getting what it needs because there's a very complicated, now I'm getting into a longer <laughs> answer, but there's a very, the, the carbon that is um, absorbed from CO2 in photosynthesis mm. Mm -hmm. It, it releases oxygen, the O2, and then the carbon becomes 
the grass, it becomes the roots, but then it also gets leaked down through the roots to feed microorganisms and also the fungal networks. And the fungal networks are actually mining the rocks mm. and bringing nutrients to the grass roots in exchange for the carbon, for the sugars. And the, um, the microbes are doing the same thing. And so the grass can actually survive it's not just the soil it's it's all these intricate networks that are feeding the grass roots in exchange for carbon mm. kind of cool um none of that is happening when we're doing you know massive monoculture with chemical assistance yeah. that's none of that is happening so it can continually continually depleting the nutrient and microbial diversity of the soil and therefore the food we're getting just continues to plummet in nutrient density. So it's no wonder that we're lacking all these nutrients. And now we just put this massive excess of calories, but uh, uh, you know, we have to chase nutrient density harder and harder and harder. And Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, you're still gonna do better eating broccoli grown today than, um, than not right like yeah. uh because there's other reasons why we're losing nutrients too we're spraying the soil with chemicals which sterilizes it um mm. and turns it into basically sand instead mm. of like this spongy soil that actually provides nutrients um and so th there have been studies that have shown that nutrient density has gone down um of our of our vegetables mm. today versus like in the 50s um but we're still better off, right? Eating nutrient as nutrient dense as we can access uh, compared to, um, you know, Just I mean, the biggest reason why we and, don't, uh, we're, we're nutrient depleted isn't because of, you know, broccoli. It's because of ultra processed food intake. Yeah, a whole, whole food system has become a mixture of flour, sugar, and oil from industrial agriculture. So yeah, so definitely nutrient density. If you prioritize nutrient density from broccoli, spinach, you know, gr green leafy vegetables, beef, seafood, you're going to get much better than the, the commonly available um, large-scale agricultural um, foods. But even better than that, you can sort of level it up by chasing foods that are created and grown in a in a more regenerative situation with vibrant soil health where animals and plants have come together and that that's sort of an indulgent luxury but a lot of us who can afford it can then invest in that and it's sort of amazingly selfish for us to say okay we've got money to invest in food that can feed my family in a good way that will make them healthy but it's also unselfish that it's going to help regenerate the planet and help rebuild soil health. So we're sort of investing in that future of our planet. Yeah, but I mean, even from, if you're just looking at this from a pure nutrition standpoint, eating, I mean, nutrient density 200 years ago might've meant, you know, a lot more organ meats, mm. which we're not really eating and also a lot of weeds. So yeah. things like purslane, which I don't even think was in chronometer. I'm not sure. <laughs> Um, but that has more omega-3 than like any plant um, and it grows everywhere. It, it's like the most pervasive weed. Um, so if you can find an organic farm and go help them weed and then just like fill a bag full of purslane, um, that's what they used to make or traditionally make sog with um, in India and also mm -hmm. spanakopita. 
uh, it was first lane. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm just, I just want to encourage people to focus on getting the nutrients they need from the food they eat, from the best food choices they can make. But even better to that, uh, than that is to level up and source foods that come from a, a regenerative local farm system. And did you see the, the biggest, littlest farm as well? Yes. That, that was just crazy the way they demonstrated beautifully how such a, an amazing um, environment creates such amazing food that people want to invest in and that their eggs were gone immediately and they were just, it, it creates a, a, a product that people want to buy and, and farmers make more profit off. So not only are they not um, having to dump in all these fertilizers and chemicals and pesticides and they've reduced the costs there, but they can then sell for a premium for these products that taste amazing because they contain the nutrients that people need. So, yeah, just unpack that. What's in it for us? What's in it for farmers? What's in it for the planet from a cost-benefit approach? Another big um, topic. What's that? Another big topic. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's really funny when you talk to people about what they can afford and what they can't afford. Um, you know, so they'll say, well, grass fed beef is too expensive, but they're like typing that on their latest iPhone that they upgraded from just the one that they bought the year before while they're waiting in line to go on a transatlantic flight to, you know, France. And, um, you know, so it's a value thing for sure. And some of us, um, have the luxury of worrying about, longevity um, and optimal health, uh, mm. either from a health event or mm. something like that. Because um, I've, I've worked in pretty poor neighborhoods where people don't really care about eating well, but it's not because they're necessarily lazy. It's just because when you're worried about, like on the hierarchy of needs and you're worried about your car starting tomorrow or losing your job, um, delayed gratification, eating steamed broccoli and roasted chicken compared to, you know, diving into, you know, a bowl of pasta or, um, you know, some fast food takeout that, you know, the kids are going to eat and taste mm -hmm. good and lights up those reward sensors. Um, you know, for a lot of people that might be their only joy all day, mm -hmm. you know, if they've had a really hard life. So I get it. Um, so the, but to those of us who kind of whatever have the privilege to um, be concerned about this and and really prioritize that, it's mm. uh, to me eating well is more important than um, driving a nice car or um, you know so many of the other things that I see the other moms at school pick up worrying about. You know, um, I, I don't care as much about the brand of purse I have, you know, so it's just a value thing. And it's unfortunate that we don't as a society value nutrient density more and that, you know, it's wrong. I think that a Twinkie is cheaper than an apple. Um, you know, that ultra processed food is so incredibly cheap and, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. It's just crazy that the, least nutrient dense foods are heavily 
subsidized and they're, they're made even cheaper not not only really cheap to produce but they're subsidized to be even cheaper so we just get this massive influx of excess calories that with contain very very little nutrition that is good for us and um one of the most popular questions on on the on the group was you know what would happen if we changed the farm subsidies to prioritize quantitative nutrient density versus just more calories we've saved the we've solved the 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 limited energy problem we've got this massive influx of excess yeah. calories but they contain no nutrients so what would happen if we changed that the focus to quantitative nutrient density that that's my dream if we can set people everything would be a meat farm <laughs> So what was right. that? It would just be a sea of meat farms, right? <laughs> <laughs> Cows everywhere. Um, yeah, and it's funny because in 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 the U.S., uh, feedlot finished beef is way cheaper than uh, grass finished beef. But in a lot of other countries I've been to, um, grain finished beef is more expensive, and it's because they mm. don't have the subsidies we have here in the U.S. Mm. Mm. Um, for cheap corn. It's crazy. It's crazy. What there's so many powers at play to keep the current food system the way it is, and and just keep keep pushing the accelerator pedal so we get more calories more cheaply to sell the most nutrient poor, high profit margin foods possible to create this growing population that's only made possible because we've got this unlimited amount of energy we're digging out of the ground to throw into our food system. And it's like. Does no one see this reality, this trajectory we're headed for? And and how do we get off this crazy roller coaster ride that can only end in disaster in so many ways? Yes, I agree. And like if we if we got people possessed with the idea of chasing the nutrients that they need from their food and you know, how do we get the the seafood and the the, the random green veggie and 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 the we beef everyone and running around trying to find the endives yeah you know. <laughs> like you were in, in the competition yeah. but, but, but then the next step would be how do we find a, a local farm that that is going to contain even more of that than what's in chronometer yeah. and the nutrient density database from the usda how do i find the most sustainably regeneratively produced endive or or uh, you know beef or whatever it was to to give me the nutrients that i need that i know will be good for me and good for the planet because it's it's regenerating topsoil it's regenerating the the microbiome it's making a sustainable diverse ecosystem that will be resilient and be here in 200 years and you know rob said the planet will be here but whether we will be at least in a way that we respect and look in the mirror and go we're a, we're an amazing human species who is moving forward and not de-evolving it's just you know that, that yeah. that's what keeps me up at night and i wake up every morning going how can i create a system that can catch people's attention to to quantify this because if you just say you need nutrients from food don't you what foods give you those nutrients and it's it's not what's being marketed as you know, oh you mean eating you. less meat isn't going to save the planet 
Is that what you're saying? Uh, but that's just a simple soundbite message that just gets shoved down everybody's throat yeah. and they've heard it a million times. That so must be true and it's in a meme, so they'll celebrate it. But it's, yeah, it's crazy. I was just on a UN meeting earlier this week um, because uh, I think I mentioned to you before we started recording. So the United Nations is trying to solve the world's problems, all of them, and with their nutrition goals are to, you know, how do we have a healthy people within planetary boundaries food system? Mm. Um, and it was really interesting because they put out a position paper, which was actually very pro meat, pro animal livestock derived foods, I think is what they call it. Or, yeah, livestock derived foods um, for developing countries. So mm. they were admitting that, um, you know, yes, this can reverse uh, or prevent stunting. It can increase uh, test scores in, in children. Um, but clearly in Western countries, we all need to eat less meat. Yeah. And that meat actually causes diseases, but only in developed countries. <laughs> Are humans different in Africa and developing I, countries to America? Or what's the go? Because we're eating so much. And so I posed a question that did not get acknowledged. Um, so in the US, we're only eating less than two ounces of beef per person per day. Um, this diet that they're trying to propose through the United Nations um, is the equivalent, you can eat the equivalent of one blueberry's worth of meat, of beef per person per day, red meat. Uh, so that would be lamb and pork as well. You could eat two blueberries worth of chicken but you could have 62 blueberries worth of sugar. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is the model diet that uh, is very likely to be adopted by the United Nations as, you know, it's not like forced or anything, but it's gonna be like, if you're a good compliant United Nations country, you're going to also agree that eating lots of sugar and not eating meat is the way to go. Um, and it's just insanity. I, it's absolute insanity. I don't understand. We're clearly, if you just look at the science, so it's just like with, you know, looking at nutrient density, but if you just look at the science, we're eating more ultra processed foods than ever before. We're eating, uh, less beef. Um, and things are not going in a good direction. Mm. Um, and you were talking about like, well, what do we need in order to get there? You know, um, one thing I saw with COVID, one good thing is, you know, more people are growing vegetables in their backyards. Everyone I know here in the Northeast of the U S who raises livestock is sold out completely. Like their animals are sold out even for the next two years. Yeah. Like they're just like waiting That's lists. Every for the farmers. That's great. Yeah. It's really, really good. People are really paying attention. They're cooking a lot more at home, which we know is good um, because portions are smaller at home. Although everyone's working from home. So 24 <laughs> access to the fridge is not a good thing. My nutrition practice has never been busier um, <laughs> because people have gained a lot of weight through the you know, stress uh, uh, and inflammation of COVID, but also just um, the access to snacking constantly. Yeah. But there's um, no time in history where it's been more important to be resilient and healthy and metabolically healthy and exactly. not and well-nourished and have a thriving um, immunity. Yeah. 
So, um, you know, on the downside though, what I'm seeing is people are realizing what meetings could have been emails, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what people maybe don't need to be commuting to an office and can work from mm -hmm. home efficiently. But a lot of people, so many people I know that live in New York City are now moving out of the city and buying mm -hmm. um, country houses as their full-time residences, mm -hmm. which is great for children. Like, great. I love that. But it also means that land prices are going up. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's really hard to grow enough cabbages in suburban Boston to support the land prices. And so... Um, we need more policy that's protecting green space in every town should have mm -hmm. multiple farms that are producing food for the community um, and not just lettuce, but also chickens and eggs and, um, you know, maybe some goats and stuff like that. So, yeah. So if we're not farmers, what can we do if we're not going to start a backyard veggie garden to grow all of our food, which is not viable for most people? What, what can you actually do to promote your family's health and the planet's health and, you know, I suppose make it cheaper if you've got the means to make it cheaper for other people in your community and your country and the world if this becomes large-scale regenerative agriculture, you know, has to be led, obviously not going to be led by the UN or the the USDA or Eat Lancet or whatever. The World they're Bank. Going I mean, none of these direction. people are going to be pro Silicon Valley is not going to be pro uh, support your small scale regenerative farmer. You know, mm. that's not good for beyond burger uh, mm. stock price. Right. Um, so, and that's really who's funding this stuff and is mm. behind this stuff is the, is beyond burger and possible foods. Um, you know, so making people think that meat is the problem, not ultra processed foods and um and making sure that uh, people are as far removed from their farmer as possible so mm. that they can create these magical pure foods in factories so that um, no death happens and you can feel good about yourself um, while making their bank accounts larger. I mean, that's the goal, right? Yeah. Um, so what can you do? So it's funny because I was looking through our book and chatting with Rob once COVID hit. Because our book came out, our, we were done with our book. It didn't, it came out mid COVID, but we were, we, you know, was already at the printers. And I was like, look, look at all the things we said in here that are, that are actually relevant to COVID. Because Rob and I are both uh, sympathetic to preppers in a way. Like I was actually stuck in Texas. Um, we were supposed to be on the Joe Rogan podcast and things got crazy. And there was this ice storm and Rob's boiling snow. You know, like <laughs> um, he survived our caveman. So good yes, That's yeah, I had to go down to his house because the hotel I was in was like there was no running water and no bottled water for anybody. Um, so you know, we had all these tips in the book, and I sh I should have it open, but um, you know, one is like keep yourself metabolically healthy. Like, just don't. There you go. Um, don't be a burden on our healthcare system by mm. letting yourself be unhealthy, keep yourself as healthy, mm -hmm. be responsible for your own health, be responsible for your, your financial self as well. Like don't be part of this ridiculous consumerism credit mm -hmm. uh, 
fantasy that you can have anything you want at any time, anywhere with no, you know, uh, so that's part of it. Um, supporting local farms and whether that's, you know, uh, buying from them or volunteering. A lot of local farms will accept volunteers if people are un underemployed or unemployed. Go get your work out by digging holes on a farm and, you know, helping them build fences. And, uh, you know, their farmer carries are actual things, not just like <laughs> not just silly CrossFit workouts. They're like actual, like, you know, um, and so it, farming is an awesome workout and a great way to get your vitamin D and also like hang out with cool people that you probably have never talked to before. I'm getting in touch with nature in a real meaningful way that's so, we're so devoid, divorced of that in touch with nature. Yeah. Nature isn't just like something you visit. It's like or see on Instagram or see on Instagram if you don't <laughs> visit it. Um, but actually understanding that nature is us, that we are animals too. Um, so, uh, you know, cooking from home, um, teaching your kids how to cook. Uh, so there's there's so many more things than just like buying a freezer full of grass-fed beef. Mm -hmm. um, if you're talented at making websites, maybe make a website for, you know, helping the, the local farmer who is likely not that into marketing yep. um so there's there's lots of opportunities to help support a better food system yeah no, and so, so many opportunities to to make it more viable to have that local farm that tastes good for you and it's good for your family and good for the planet because it's regenerating it it's growing for the future and not just depleting and and drawing down on natural resources that we're gonna really miss eventually we're gonna look up and go where do the nutrients in our soil go? Where did our soil go? Where did the microbiome go? Where do the animals go? And what do we do about it now? And how do we wind that back? So hopefully enough people will take this into their own hands and, and chase nutrients in their food with food that tastes amazing. And, you know, it tastes amazing because it's got what it, what you need in those foods. So um, what are you working on in the future? And um, uh, what are you excited about? So many things by the sounds of it. Yes. Yeah, so um, I am starting a new, actually, I think next week we're going to launch the website. So it's called the Global Food Justice Alliance. Um, it is fighting for uh, culturally appropriate food in traditional um, uh, societies where, you know, rich vegan people from Sweden are coming in and saying that they need to get rid of their meat. Um, so we're going to be pointing out the um, unscientific nature of these uh, limited meat or no meat diets um, and the elitism of them, um, the privilege it is to be pushing away traditional foods and, and uh, animal source foods. Um, it's a coalition of academics, doctors, dietitians, and chefs uh, who are all just very concerned about mm. the, the movement towards um, less and no meat um, mm. on the global scale. And so I'm really excited about that because it's really big. Um, there aren't many people other than industry who are um, talking about this kind of thing. Mm. Mm. Um, and so that's my latest passion project that I'm really excited about. I'm still seeing clients, um, but it's it's getting 
really tight because I'm just so excited about this Global Food Justice Alliance stuff. Um, I'm still doing screenings of Sacred Cow and talking about the film and uh, the book. Uh, and, you know, still quite active on Instagram at Sustainable Dish. Yeah. And, and the book is amazing. It, it, it really, like, it's worth it to get your head around the, the big picture issues. And you've taken, gone to the effort of capturing them all in one place in one book and and like rob says if you disagree with us read the book tell us where you disagree with us tell us where we've got it wrong because this is how we see it this is how we've wrapped it up in in one big integrated picture and it's really hard to unsee once you understand all that so have you got people coming back and pushing back in the details and saying you got it wrong here and here and here and there's one actually there's one um piece that we're editing for the paperback version and that is the uh white oak pastures study so the study that showed um that uh this grass-fed beef was actually uh you know, sequestering more carbon than Impossible Burgers and Beyond Burgers. And that's because when it went through peer review, which hadn't happened when we yeah. wrote the book, um, there were several other factors that contributed to the carbon sequestration. It wasn't only the, the cattle. It was um, also he was applying uh, compost to the pastures and there were also chickens that were following the cattle. So mm -hmm. Um, they weren't able to say 100% definitively it was 100% cattle that were mm, right. the, causing the, the major carbon sequestration. Now, is it likely? Yes. It, it, the, were the cattle probably 95% of the carbon sequestration? Probably. But yeah. they weren't able to like prove that. And, um, and so we, I have to go back in and adjust the very strong statements that we made only because right. initially we didn't have that information um, before the peer review. Yeah. Uh, so it's a holistic uh, regenerative farm, whether it be the, the animals, the, the cattle or the chickens or the pigs that are all working together to create something more vibrant. Yeah, um, I mean, at the it, end of the day, did it improve the, ecosystem function? Yes. yes. Is it a benefit to the environment? Yes. Is this farm one of the most amazing farms that I've ever been to. Oh my God. Yes. Like I'm, I'm going there. I'm doing some workshops there in the fall. It's incredible. The amount of jobs that this guy has created in this, the poorest County in the country. Um, he it's what he's done is amazing. So uh, anyhow, so I do have to adjust that. Um, yep. And Rob and I are always, you know, as scientists, like, really open, you know, tell us where we got it wrong. And if we see different evidence, we'll change our position. So yeah. um, we're trying to be as uh, unemotional about all of this as possible, but yet passionate at the same time that we believe this overall worldview that um, natural cycles trump tech. Mm. Yeah, we try to engineer and optimize uh, everything. But you know, the further we get away from how things were in the past, the, the further, more dystopian potentially it gets. Um, so is it Sacred Cow on, available online, Netflix? Um, what, not what, Netflix. What, not on oh. Netflix yet? Netflix can 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 produce as a Netflix original Seaspiracy, but it, it can't uh, seem to even want to carry Sacred Cow. 
Uh, I've been to Netflix. I had coffee with Netflix. Wow. There were a lot of vegan food op offerings at, in the Netflix cafeteria. Um, there's a lot of politics at Netflix. Um, so it is available on Amazon um, in the US and Canada. It's on iTunes in Australia and New Zealand. It's on the Evolve Network in Australia. Um, I just signed with FanForce. And so um, they're going to be doing, they're going to be letting people actually host screenings um, in theaters. Um, and so that's kind of cool. So you can actually just go to them and, and uh, get all the information you need in order to host your own screening of Sacred Cow anywhere you want um, in a theater, which cool. I think I think people are going to start watching movies in theaters again soon. <laughs> um, and I hope to be able to come out there and and visit with you. I'm I'm starting to do some work with some ranches in um, Australia and New Zealand, so I'd love to come down. That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. And any final thoughts to leave people with on regenerative agriculture and how they can look after the health of them, the family and the planet all at the same time? Yeah. I mean, I think all of this stuff is interrelated. Um, I think we were, you and I both like see the dark side of all that <laughs> stuff. And so it can be overwhelmingly depressing sometimes when you look at how screwed up our food system is and our society overall and how everyone's seeing everything. Um, but then once you realize, okay, well, what can I do about this? Um, the best thing I think we can do is try to help people understand that, you know, taking care of their bodies and teaching their kids how to do that and just be good people and enjoy life uh, is the best thing you can do. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy. I have two healthy, happy children that um, are exploring their interests and are in exploring nature and excited about the world and um, hopefully we'll leave a, a good mark. Yeah, yeah, and we can invest in ourselves, our own health, our family's health in a way that regenerates and makes a healthier world for the future that won't just be dystopian but anyway um yeah people <laughs> listening will uh, gain hope and 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 be inspired to do something in their backyard in a way that will change that so thank you so much for your time thanks for your friendship and thanks for your yeah support. hopefully i didn't slur too many words i didn't even like finish <laughs> well. <this>. okay. <laughs> all right thanks, so much. thanks everyone bye okay bye